You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh God, in you, we're not what we want to be. But we thank you that in you, we're not what we're going to be. And so, Lord, as we find ourselves in that in-between, that you would conform us more and more into your likeness, and that you would give us the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Up until now, we have only heard of glowing reports of David. We've witnessed his faithfulness, his perseverance, his character, his hope in God, and now he enjoys the safety and security of God's blessing him with the United Kingdom. He rules from the fortified city of Jerusalem. But here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, things take a terrible turn. It opens up with really wonderful poetic language in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, I've preached this before. And I'll be honest, often I say, well, this is where the problem started, that David remained behind. But guess what? That's actually not that much of a problem. In chapter 10, we hear that when the offensive campaign against the Ammonites, when it began, that David sent messengers, that he sent messages, that he sent his army, leading us to conclude that David was in Jerusalem. Now, no one had any problem with David being in Jerusalem in chapter 10, but now we have a big problem with David being in Jerusalem in chapter 11. Why? Because of what's about to happen. And certainly, if David were off at Rabbah, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But that would be to underestimate the human condition. In fact, I think with the author is trying to do is to create a juxtaposition of the safety and security of David in his palace with the fighting and death that is 40 miles away in Rabbah. While the fighting is going on 40 miles away, there's David safe and secure in his home. The author wants us to know that David had finally arrived He landed the corner office. He'd paid off his mortgage. He got all the kids out of college and off the payroll. And for the first time ever, he felt the freedom to do what he wanted to do. Now, it would have saved us a whole lot of grief if he had just bought the Harley. If he had gotten the little red sports car. But as John Woodhouse reminds us, but the sequence of events that began to unfold will show us that the king was not safe from himself. The walls of Jerusalem were not protection against his own deep flaws. And it's described in just two little words. In verse 2, 
It happened. It happened. So there he was, in the lap of luxury, while his army was off fighting. He arose from his couch and went for a stroll on his roof to enjoy the cool of the evening. And what happened was that he acted out in a way that had significant ramifications on his heart, the lives of others, and indeed an entire nation. His sin was in no way a private affair. And so there he is, walking there on the roof of his home, and what should he see but a woman bathing? Now, quite frankly, there's nothing that has gone wrong up to this point. I mean, my family and I, we were in France this summer, and my eight-year-old was having a very hard time at the beach because of the lack of clothing that she often saw. Now, I will admit that that which she saw would probably lead none of us astray uh, because of the type of person who tends to do that. But nonetheless, if you're walking on the roof and you see an attractive woman, they're bathing on the roof, you look. But instead of turning away and veiling his eyes as he should have done, what did David do? He continued to look. Now when we read this passage, we often blame David solely. But what about Bathsheba? What role did she play, if any at all? The Bible is nearly silent. But it's good for us to stop and think on this for just a minute. As one who has frequented many SEC football games and tailgated ahead of time, I've been shocked by the selection of wardrobe by some young women. And there is a difference between being attractive and being seductive. I think that women know the difference but I am certain that men do. But here, there's no indication that Bathsheba should have thought better than to bathe on the rooftop. One, we know that nearly every able-bodied man in the city would have been where? And Rabba, fighting. So the town is, is pretty abandoned with the exception of the, the guard to hold the keep. Two, We're told why she was bathing in verse 4. She had been purifying herself from uncleanness. It turns out that Bathsheba had been pursuing holiness while David was pursuing the lusts of his own heart. And when he sees her and can't take his eyes off her, he leaves the rooftop and he begins to make inquiries He Googles her, he Facebook stalks her, and he finds out who she is. We find out three things about her. One, she's married. Two, that her grandfather was one of David's own mighty men from years ago, meaning she's somebody's daughter. And then three, we learn her name, Bathsheba, which means daughter of an oath. And what David was about to do makes a mockery of oath-keeping. And when we read the story, 
startling because it's so stark. So David sent his messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. There's no dialogue between the two of them. David sent, he took, she came, he lay, and he sent her away. No dialogue, and God doesn't even speak. All we see are acts and no emotions. It happened. And then he sent her home. There's no communication after. There's no, hey, hope all is well with you. No, David has used her for his own purposes and no longer has need of her. And we finally hear Bathsheba speak when she sends word to David with two Hebrew words, three here in English, I am pregnant. And what is David's response? He doesn't even respond to her. But he sends a message to Joab, his commanding general, that Uriah be sent home to meet with the king, and then it goes from bad to worse. Uriah comes home. And David says, you should go home. Enjoy the break. And worse than that, he begins with all this small talk. How's Joab? How's the war going? Everything fine? He doesn't care all about that. He thinks, I'm going to get myself out of this situation by sending Uriah home. He'll sleep with his wife, and then the pregnancy can be his fault. We'll blame it on him. He'll be the father to my child. But he didn't know what kind of man he was dealing with because Uriah the Hittite, and he must have been a Hittite generations and generations ago because here he is, a faithful follower of the king of Israel, but more than that, the God of Israel. How can I go back to my wife when my compatriots are out in the field bleeding and dying? My place is here if it's not there, in the field. And so he stays. David says, well, I guess I'll just have to get him drunk. Now, I'd like to say that Uriah didn't make it to his house that night because of his faithfulness, but the text actually indicates that he's so drunk he made it as far as David's couch. And so that's where he spent the night. And then David writes a letter the death warrant for Uriah, and has Uriah himself carry it to Joab, put him on the front lines. And Joab indicates later on that this is a bad idea because if we charge the walls, even an old woman with a rock is going to kill whoever's underneath the wall. But valiant valiant Uriah is there to lead the charge. And there he dies. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. I wish that we could say that this story is an outlier. But I would imagine that most of us here today can sympathize Because this story is nothing more than Genesis 3 played out in the life of David. 
like Adam and Eve, he saw, he took, he ate, and he fell. And each and every single one of us struggles with the reality of sin in our own lives, whether that be sexual or otherwise. It may manifest itself sexually in your life. And I would be remiss if I didn't touch on a topic that is rampant, but still largely taboo. And that is pornography. Pornography has destroyed entire generations sexually. It is often the issue lurking behind the problem when someone is coming to speak with me about problems in their own life, especially young men in their 20s and 30s. They find themselves incapable of connecting emotionally with others. And the women that come to see me are struggling to live up to the sexual standard that has been set by this lie. You see, that's the great irony of pornography. Early opponents thought that viewing pornography would lead to sexual mayhem, sex-crazed men. But what we've seen is the opposite. Pornography has led to the deadening of male libido. Men are turning away from women and turning to the internet. Naomi Wolf in the New York Magazine writes, quote, But does all this sexual imagery in the air mean that sex has been liberated? Or is it the case that the relationship between the multi-billion dollar pornography industry, compulsiveness, and sexual appetite has become like the relationship between agribusiness, processed foods, supersized portions, and obesity? If your appetite is stimulated and fed by poor quality material, it, makes, it takes more junk to fill you up. People are not closer because of pornography, but further apart. People are not more turned on in their daily lives, but less so. And she wrote this in 2003, and we're now reaping the whirlwind. And we may say that what we do in the bedroom or the computer room is a matter of privacy. What goes on in the bedroom should not and does not affect our public lives. And that is a complete lie, and we know it. For we see in verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Stronger is the Hebrew, which says, what David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. God is not angered because David is king and therefore in a high-profile position. Nathan the prophet would later show us in chapter 12 that anyone, no matter the situation, would have incurred God's wrath for the same sin. And it's not only a matter of exploitation of Bathsheba, awful as that is. The world is peddling a lie that the only boundary for sexual expression is the consent of the individuals involved. So long as the two people consent, there is no harm, nothing wrong has occurred. So if Bathsheba had consented, which there's of course no indication that she did, there wouldn't be a problem here. And you may ask, Andrew, why are you talking about this? Trust me, I don't like talking about this. Well, one, the Bible talks about this, and two, Everyone else in the world is talking about this. Colin Hansen from the Gospel Coalition said that someone is always catechizing your children. 
What he means by that is that someone is always teaching your children something about life. And so if we're not talking about it, let me assure you that the world is talking about it and doing its darndest to inculcate your children about it. And if it's not driving us to silence, it's driving us to capitulation. For there are even some that are inside the church of God who would say it's not that big a deal. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't hurt anybody, it's okay. And yet, we know that that's not true. For our own lives are witnesses to the wreckage that sexual sin and brokenness can cause. I was eight years old the first time I saw pornography. I suffered abuse at the hands of a family member. I grew up confused, scared, guilty. Nobody wanted to talk to me about this, and I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody about this. So I thought the answer was just to get over it and move on. Like so many of us. And if it were not for the redemption that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't imagine the mess that I would be in. But you see, that's where David goes wrong. He's living out Psalm 14. He's the fool who is saying in his heart, there is no God. With his lips, he certainly confesses a belief in God. But what he thinks is, I've gotten myself in this situation. I'm going to get myself out. And I'm going to get myself out unscathed. I can handle the situation. I'm going to live as if there is no God. Not only with Bathsheba, but also in setting things to rights. It's on me. And yet that is foolishness. Because it only gets worse and David becomes so mired in his own sin that he can't even see reality when Nathan comes to confront him to tell him, thou art the man. And the Bible's understanding about human sexuality is not about being a fun sponge, about limiting life, but actually about living life to the fullest. The beauty of sexual intimacy in its right context in a marital relationship between a man and a woman demonstrates the intimacy that we can have with God. The closeness that a husband and a wife share with one another is a beautiful thing. And yet, our world is distorting it. But like David, they're not to be objects of ridicule and scorn and heavy-laden guilt. How do you deal with foolish people? You care for them and you try to bring them into the knowledge of the truth. They're not the enemy. They've simply been taken captive by a lie. And so it would be wrong for us to say, those people, because we're all in the same boat. And so where does that leave us for those who are broken sexually, 
And in our sin, and we find ourselves so mired, we don't think that we can get out. The first thing is, don't go it alone. Find a godly brother or sister or a pastor and say, I'm stuck. And I don't know how to get out. I'm broken. I don't want to be like this. I want this forgiveness and redemption and this freedom that you're talking about in Jesus Christ. Because you can't get yourself out. Listen to David's lament. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, God. Only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is David, the man that is after God's own heart. Now crushed and seemingly hopeless, but he knows where his help comes from. His help comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see what would happen. David and Bathsheba would lose this baby. The baby would die. And God took this mess and he redeemed it. Because Bathsheba would have another son and his name is Solomon who would give birth to a child, who would give birth to another child, who would give birth, so on, until we arrive at the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Even God can take an act that is so terrible and heinous and redeem it for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. His arm is never too short to save. And so this morning, no matter how your brokenness manifests itself, that you would cry out for help and understand that our sin is no private affair but has terrible ramifications for our life. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is plenteous redemption and grace. A fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.